Hello and welcome to Mac Bites, episode 142. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we have wondrous woolly mammoths, blinking biometrics and dating dogs. But first, let's catch up on a few things from last week's show. We heard from Gavin following the last show. He recommended an app called Click for YouTube. It's a desktop app for macOS and it allows you to consume YouTube content without seeing any ads. It's a very reasonable £7 to purchase. So thank you very much for the recommendation, Gavin. Got me thinking, so I had a look in the App Store and there's several more apps doing a similar thing, which tells me there's certainly demand for ad removal. I blame YouTube for making the ads so intrusive. The problem with making ads so intrusive is that folks want to block the ads. That in turn means either reduced revenue or maybe even no revenue for the content creators, those folks producing the videos, which in turn means less content for everyone on YouTube. Why should the content creators receive no compensation for what they create, especially when the developers of the ad blocking apps are selling them? They're not free. And I suspect if a content creator suggested maybe the ad blocking app should be free, the developers of those apps would have something to say about it. I actually had less problem with the pre-roll ads than the ads that weren't inside the video. They were embedded in the YouTube pages. If you've ever seen pages on the Daily Mail site without an ad blocker, you'll know what I mean. But I must clarify, I don't recommend visiting the Daily Mail site, full stop. But if on occasion you need to, it's nothing short of an assault on the senses. There are times you literally can't find the story for the ads. And that's what YouTube are becoming. They need to rein that in before they really rattle the creators. Because all of this means the creators are driven to including sponsorship pieces inside the videos to offset what they're losing from the ads. And sponsored content burnt into the video. No blocking solution is going to stop you seeing it. I think we discussed that last week in regard to the YouTube light option currently testing. But while people have an appetite not to see ads, they don't want to have to take another subscription to do it. I don't know if it would make a difference if the subscription was really inexpensive, something like 99 pence a month. Let me know, would you be prepared to spend 99 pence a month to block the ads? Is it the price of it or is it just the fact that they're too intrusive? I'd be really interested to know. Anyway, great to hear from you, Gavin. Moving on, or should I say moving back to the iCloud photo issue. To say the fallout from Apple's plan to triage your iCloud photos for photos of an inappropriate adult nature continues is an understatement. I don't think there's a publication on the planet who haven't had something to say about this. And that includes Apple, who have spent the entire week responding in episodes. And right there is the major issue with how this news has been handled. How did they not anticipate the fallout from their initial announcement? They must have expected grief or it wouldn't have been announced on a Friday. I think it's safe to say there's been more fallout than they initially expected. Understatement. You know it's serious when they're forced to roll Craig out. Ooh. Did it do any good? Not really. It's still rumbling on. And in a turn of events that undoubtedly left Timmy grinding his expensive teeth, the Apple employees have weighed in with their collective opinion. The peasants revolt. Again. Did any of this actually move the debate further on? No, not one jot. We'll doubtless revisit this one when the dust settles and iOS 15 is actually released. Hot on the heels of last week's story about Amazon's palm print payments technology, I updated the NatWest app on my phone. Yes, I know, me updating apps. Put the flags out. I only did it because it said it would stop working. Anyway, there's a new feature, biometric approval. To quote from the NatWest website, you are your strongest password, so why not use your face or voice, which is coming soon, to approve your everyday banking needs and keep your accounts even more secure? It's even got its own hashtag. It's really me. The app has actually had integration with Face ID and Touch ID for quite a while. I use it to log into the app and to authorise payments, and if that fails, the app passcode can be used instead. 
However, until now, if you needed to make a payment over a thousand pounds and you've never paid that person or company before, or if you have, you've only done it via the app, you'd have to first log into the online banking website and use a card reader as authentication. And we all know how that ended when I needed to pay a £4,000 credit card bill. If you don't, have a listen to MacBytes episode 136. Let's just say I paid it off in episodes. Once you've registered for biometric approval, you'll be able to use your face instead of using the card reader to authorise all transactions, even those over £1,000. How does it work? Well, an approval request will be sent to your NatWest app. This could be from a transaction that you're making outside the app, for example, when you're shopping online. You'll be asked to present your face to the camera and blink. This is compared to the one that they have stored on their servers. And if there's a match, you can continue with the transaction. At the moment, this is entirely optional. If you'd rather not use biometrics, you can continue to use the card reader, along with its limitations, of course. A few interesting points from the NatWest FAQs. Biometric information is encrypted and stored in a strong and secure NatWest database that no other business or individual can access. It's retained for two years, at which point you need to reconsent to them holding it. And if you don't, it'll be removed from their servers. And what if you change the way you look? Well, you don't need to worry. If you grow your hair long or grow a beard, it'll still know it's you. So have I set it up? Not yet. Come on, you know how far wrong these things can go. I'm psyching myself up to it. So look out for part two of what hopefully won't turn into a saga. Once again, following up from last time with the news that WhatsApp were rolling out a view once only option. It seems Signal are joining the list of now you see it, now you don't messaging apps. I still don't see the appeal of this, other than for nefarious purposes, but I did do a bit of research. And it turns out there are numerous services out there offering the same thing. None as mainstream as WhatsApp and Signal, though. So maybe the mainstream apps are concerned about losing users if they don't offer this feature. We'll doubtless be hearing of this again once its existence becomes more common knowledge and someone finds a way to do something suitably nefarious with it. At least Instagram are rolling out some additional options to enable account holders to control their interactions on the platform. They have announced that they are introducing three safety features. Number one, limits. It gives you granular control over who can DM you. You can block those who don't follow you or who have only just recently started following you. Obviously, you've still got the block all DMs option, but that is a bit nuclear, isn't it? This option, the limits option, is available right now. The second thing is hidden word filter, and that allows you to automatically filter DMs containing words in a predetermined list. And that's been there since April, but they're just drawing attention to it. That can also include emojis and hashtags as well. The third option is the, and I quote, stern warnings to posters option. In what seems like an obvious step, Instagram are intending to issue sterner warnings to those posting the offensive material. <laughs> Unbelievably, this option was already there, but only if you attempted to post multiple offensive messages. Head, desk. Come on, one offensive message is too many. What is wrong with these people? Anyway, that was WhatsApp. Then there was TikTok. They are also getting in on this privacy thing. Their contribution was a raft of changes intending to protect young users, and it mainly consisted of changing default options, all of which could be reversed in seconds by a tech-savvy millennial. But I guess it's a start. And the final thing to catch up with from last week is Apple and their surveys. This time, Apple are surveying owners of 12-inch MacBooks. Why limit yourself to those who own a specific device? Surely it's just as important to survey those who decided not to buy a specific product. That might actually tell Apple even more. Because what you previously bought doesn't necessarily predict what you'll buy in the future. You might grow to loathe what you've bought. Your circumstances might have changed, especially working from home. Hence the exponential increase in the purchase of desktop devices during the pandemic. All these surveys seem to point to Apple not having a coherent strategy across the entire range of their devices. 
Going back, Steve Jobs was a master of predicting what people want without resorting to actually asking them. I found three pieces of interest from Walter Isaacson's biography of Jobs. The first one was that at a 1982 planning retreat, someone on the Mac team said they thought they should do some market research to see what the customers wanted. No, Jobs replied, because customers don't know what they want until we've shown them. The second one, on the day he unveiled the Macintosh, a reporter from Popular Science asked Jobs what type of market research he had done. Jobs responded by scoffing, did Alexander Graham Bell do market research before he invented the phone? Good point. And the third one was, some people say give customers what they want. But that's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going to want before they do. I think Henry Ford once said, if I asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. And that's why I never rely on market research. Our task is to read things that are not yet on the page. All very sage and wise words. Apple's best work came from these principles, and it'd be interesting to see where they go after they've completed these surveys. It'll be even more interesting to see how future products based on them will actually be received. I wish they'd ask me about their apps. You know, the apps formerly known as iWork. Nobody is that brave. You're not wrong there. There's nothing more entertaining than a Samsung event. Point one, they usually scream. Point two, I will definitely not be tempted to spend money. This time it was two new phones and more besides. They started with a Galaxy Watch 4. Wear OS powered by Samsung, apparently. I've no idea what that means. It's not iOS. But they did say it constantly monitored things like blood pressure, blood oxygen and body composition. That sounds very dicey. This year's watch comes in two forms, the Galaxy Watch 4 and the Galaxy Watch 4 Classic. The standard watch is thinner and lighter and also has a touch-sensitive bezel for controlling the interface. The Classic is thicker with a bezel that physically spins. Yes, I wondered as well. The Watch 4 starts at $250 and comes in 40mm size or 44 and the Classic starts at $350 and comes in 42mm or 46 which seems mighty large. Was I tempted? No! Then they came on to the phones, starting with the Galaxy Z Fold 3, elegantly named. Despite lots of talk, folding phones just don't seem to have entered the mainstream yet. The previous version was expensive and riddled with issues, but Samsung are still hanging in there. Never say die, hey Samsung. The Galaxy Z Fold 3 is the third iteration of what they're calling the hot dog style folding phone, which means instead of folding top to bottom like a flip phone, it folds left to right. I'm not sure of the logic of that. I thought flip phones were to give you a bigger screen, not the same size screen just folded in half, but I digress. The price is reduced from $2,000 to $1,800 and they've improved the durability by adding a stronger aluminium frame and a more durable folding display and waterproofed it for the first time. They've even added an under display camera. Clever trick. Albeit that's going to come at the expense of picture quality. They've also added three more, more standard and less hidden lenses, an ultra wide, a wide angle and a telephoto, all coming in at 12 megapixels each. And it supports the S Pen stylus now. I do quite fancy a stylus for my iPhone. Anyway, that is going to be shipping on the 26th of August, so not long to wait. Then there was the Galaxy Z Flip 3. While their flagship Galaxy Z Fold 3 took up most of the spotlight, there was room for this Galaxy Z Flip 3. Apparently, this also has durability improvements and an improved aluminium body with a more durable display. That doesn't say much about the last ones, does it? With IPX8 water resistance. About time. But apparently the X in that means if it gets splashed with water, it'll probably be okay. But don't let it go swimming anytime soon. It's got a 10 megapixel selfie camera on the inside and two 12 megapixel cameras, ultra wide and wide angle on the outside. 
It's $400 cheaper than the last version at only, brace yourselves, $999. But on the upside, that's the first time a Samsung foldable has actually been under $1,000. It's got a bigger cover screen, the screen that shows whenever the device is actually folded shut. Uh, that is 1.9 inch rather than the previous 1.1. So, are you tempted by a folding phone then, Mike? No, it's never been on my radar. I did once have a clamshell phone, though. Do you know, the best feature of that was to stop you butt dialing. Anyway, Samsung weren't done yet. Oh, no. Then there was the almost obligatory earbuds. A new generation of its entry-level wireless earbuds, smaller and lighter, with active noise cancellation. Also shipping, 26th of August, for $149. So, a very successful event for me. New tech and not tempted to spend anything at all. Now, we haven't actually seen macOS Monterey, known as the full Monty here, obviously, even released yet. But that isn't stopping the Apple News site speculating about the next version of macOS. Reportedly, there were two candidates for the final name of this year's macOS release, Monterey and a Mammoth. I predicted Monterey, as Mammoth didn't seem like a name that Apple marketing would go for. But predictions are already that macOS 2022 will be called macOS Mammoth. Can I just say, if it is, then it'll be macOS Woolly Mammoth at MacBytes headquarters. Oh, and if it's not Woolly Mammoth, I have a second prediction. macOS Tar Pits. Thanks to Kim for bringing that wonderfully named location to my attention. It actually took me weeks to remember the name correctly. For me, it was Stinky Pond for a long time. Anyway, I mentioned this as there was a long article speculating about what we can expect from this mythical version of macOS. It's a concept. It builds on the changes introduced in Biggles and extended in the full Monty, but boy, is it different. It looks like a big iPad. There are dedicated mock-ups of a radical new desktop design with a floating menu bar, an updated control centre, having Sherlocked several apps into oblivion. And if you are of the uninitiated, Sherlocking is a term used to describe a situation where Apple includes the functionality previously exclusive to a third party app in a new version of the OS. The Urban Dictionary, for once, is very accurate without their usual need for expletives. They say to have developed a product and just started shipping it only to have Apple come along and provide exactly the same functionality in a system update. They also make note that it happened to Karelia Software twice, once with the original Sherlock, which became Spotlight, and again with iWeb. Talking of Sherlocking, the new Windows management buttons would potentially Sherlock other Windows management apps like Moom and Magnet. There's also a mock-up of extended functionality on the right-hand side of the dock. Desktop widgets, which remind me of Tiger. I thought they were great, and they never used them once. They're suggesting that an app library will replace Launchpad. I never use Launchpad. We need a poll. Let us know if you use Launchpad. Then they've got apps folders in the dock. Scribble being added to the Mac. Front row, a completely new design. The Clips app coming to macOS, an updated weather app and an integrated maintenance app. They even include guesses as to which older Macs will support it. Obviously, it's unlikely to be exactly what we get, but it's definitely worth a look. You'll either love it and be disappointed in macOS 2022, whatever it's called, or you'll hate it and spend the next year dreading what might be incoming. There's also a range of rather snazzy wallpapers used in the mock-ups, and they're all available for download, should you be inclined. I feel it would be nice if they could leave off the speculation about macOS 2022 until we actually have the full Monty in our hands. On this basis, should I make some wild predictions about iPhone 19? You can if you like, but I doubt they'll be as wild as those made this week about iPhone 13. Oh, you're not wrong there. They involve two screens. Seriously, one on the front, obviously, and another miniature screen on the back next to the camera. 
<laughs> Let's file that onto no time soon. Also this week, news that Safari Redesign Gate rumbles on. You'll doubtless recall the extreme changes made to Safari in the latest beta versions of the browser. Well, if it's a problem, why don't you just use another browser? You're not a lab rat. Your productivity shouldn't be held to ransom, at the mercy of Apple's bizarre and increasingly random redesigns. When it comes to browsers, you seriously can't beat Vivaldi. And handily, I'm currently in the midst of a 30-day series covering all the fantastic features of the Vivaldi browser. If you've not heard of Vivaldi, well, where have you been? It's simply the best browser out there. It's completely free. It's cross-platform. It's absolutely fabulous. If you're interested, you can follow along with the series on my blog at elainegiles.co.uk. Have I tempted you over to the delights of Vivaldi yet? You know me, it takes me a while to move out of my comfort zone. Oh, indeed. It does usually take you a long time. And dynamite. It usually requires dynamite. But I'm getting there with Vivaldi, though. Twitter got a makeover this week. Now, I hadn't even seen the Twitter website in years, much less used it until Ship 30 for 30 in July. And even then, I was in and out and done. It's confusing at best and a nightmare at worst. All I actually want is a simple chronological feed. Latest posts at the top. However, they are, and I quote, redesigning the Twitter experience. I know, a phrase to strike terror into your very soul. But hey, it's that bad already. How much worse can it get? There you go again. Tempting fate. Well, the first thing that caught the imagination in this redesign was the new font. Imaginatively called Chirp. I'll just leave that there for a couple of seconds. Chirp. Actually, it really wasn't that much different, but that did not stop a full chorus of complaints. Less about the font and more about other issues. The mob turned on the high contrast colour scheme. As I read it, there was an option with editable colour preferences. But don't quote me, as I can barely navigate the timeline, much less access the increasingly convoluted preferences. Then came the stage I figured the shark had been well and truly jumped. Headaches. Yes, multiple people were reporting that the redesign was leaving them with headaches. How long do you have to stare at the Twitter homepage to get a headache? How about being more concerned about the photo cropping algorithms that crop people of colour and women out of photos before white men on Twitter? I can't believe I'm even having to say that in 2021. What idiot programmed something like that? Algorithms are like newborns, completely prejudice-free, until someone installs that prejudice. Now, before you think I'm barking mad, Twitter have actually admitted this. The link's in the show notes. I think it's time to investigate just who programmed that prejudice into the system. But despite there being much more important concerns at Twitter, the livery of the follow button was the next target of the mob. Apparently, folks couldn't work out the follow button from the following button. This led to people unfollowing people they wanted to follow and following those they didn't. Is it time to introduce compulsory IQ testing for those venturing onto social media? I feel it wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea. I must say I didn't even notice the changes for two reasons. One, I'm hardly ever on Twitter these days. And two, I use Tweetbot when I do venture in there. I had to include this next piece. Talk about happy memories for me. A Commodore Amiga 500 was my 21st birthday present from my parents. I absolutely loved it. It was my primary computer for over six years. Well, it's back. Yes, the Commodore Amiga 500 really is making a comeback in miniature form. It comes with a replica of the original mouse at full scale and something called a games controller. I know, don't ask me. Looks weird. I've no idea what to do with it. We used joysticks back in my day, though doubtless that means something entirely different. Should I check the dreaded Urban Dictionary? What does it say? O M. G. From this day forth, I will never mention ever having owned a joystick. Oh dear, I don't think that's physically possible. Well, not without reconstructive surgery anyway. Let's get back to the tech. 
From the images, it's completely adorable. It's obviously much smaller than the original, but in terms of the detail, it looks identical. A complete bargain at £120 and available from early next year. Filing that away under the category want. So consider yourselves pre-notified as you draw up your Christmas lists. Shall I add a joystick to that list as well? No, I would much rather you didn't. Moving swiftly along. In a genius move, a German animal shelter is posting profiles of adoptable pets on Tinder. Now, I've never even seen Tinder, but admiring adoptable pets is certainly the way to get me to try it. Reports are it's working better than the shelter could ever have imagined. Can I just clarify that it's not the dogs listed choosing each other for a swift date? You've just ruined this story for me now. Sorry about that. Actually, that's only my understanding. I assumed that humans looking for a quick date see the dogs and decide quite sagely that a quiet night in with a dog is much more preferable to a bawdy night out with a stranger. There was an announcement from 1Password a few days ago. The long-awaited 1Password 8 was released in beta. What were they thinking? A clunky iPad-esque interface, semi-transparent sidebar, overall a much more Fisher-Price look. I was suspicious. I was right to be suspicious. The launch post made no mention of two important aspects of this incoming update. The first of these important issues is 1Password will become subscription only. Now, come on, guys. Is there anyone left on the planet that doesn't know that forcing a subscription on users is the fastest way to become public enemy number one in Apple land? No, I thought not. Well, that's exactly what they've done. This is despite a few years ago at the launch of 1Password 7, Dave Tier saying, and I quote, you asked why not have both 1Password memberships and standalone licenses at the same time. Certainly you're right, and I don't want to do anything to pay off our long-time customers. And that's exactly why we're rolling out 1Password memberships exactly the way we are. You can purchase a standalone license today just like you could last week. I would love to be able to link you to that blog post, but it's 404ing on 1Password site right now. I have linked you to another post that quotes the original. And I did find a completely separate post that in hindsight is even more interesting than it was back in 2017 when it was originally posted. It's quite long, but worth a listen. So, quoting from their blog. Now, the thing is, I know it's not realistic to expect everyone to be able to join one of our memberships at this time. As great as 1Password memberships are, I know that our excitement for them can cause some people to become worried. After all, many have corporate policies or regional restrictions that prevent them from using a hosted solution like ours. And so they're understandably concerned. And I want those people to know that there's a future for them with 1Password. These worries are compounded by the fact that 1Password 6 for Windows was designed from the ground up to support 1Password Teams customers only, and then later expanded to include family and individual plans. And we are unsure how this adventure will play out on the Windows side of the world. So we haven't made any public announcements about when support for standalone vaults will be added, if ever. Many Mac users worry that the same fate awaits 1Password 6 for Mac and that we will remove support for local vaults and force them to pay again. This isn't going to happen. First, it would be evil to take away something you've already paid for. And evil doesn't make for a happy 1Password customer, which is the cornerstone for a happy 1Password maker. It's simply not who we are. For those who purchase 1Password 6 for Mac already, you're perfectly fine the way you are and continue rocking 1Password the way you have been. There's no requirement to change anything as we will not be removing features or forcing you to subscribe. In fact, we're still selling licenses of 1Password 6 for Mac for those that really need them. You can find them today on the setup screen under more options. And you need not worry about 1Password 7 for Mac either, as it will continue to support standalone vaults just like version 6 does today. We know that not everyone is ready to make the jump yet, 
And as such, we will continue to support customers who are managing their own standalone vaults. 1Password 6 and even 1Password 7 will continue to support standalone vaults. But 1Password memberships are indeed awesome and are the best way to use 1Password. And as such, I'm going to continue to nudge you over whenever I can. Love, Dave, a happy 1Password maker. Well, it seems the nudging has turned into an almighty shove, with the exit door being the only alternative. We already have a family subscription, so it's not the price that's the issue for us. As for many others, it's the principle. Having acknowledged the importance of choice with the last version, it seems they've changed their minds with this one. Poor form. It is very poor form. I know they didn't say never, although it does sound like it. No, they didn't say never. I noticed that too. They specifically referred to version 6 and version 7, not making any promises as to the future. Even so, the sentiment back then doesn't seem to match their actions now. Agile Bits started as macOS developers, uh, with a real family feel to them. However, now it's all venture capital generation, and they seem to have moved into the corporate space. And the impact of that? Well, Windows has the largest market share in the corporate world, which leads nicely on to the second issue. The second important aspect of the incoming update is the development of the app switched to Electron. You may never have heard of Electron, but the odds are you've at least tried an Electron app. Electron apps include Notion, Slack, Roam, Evernote 10. None of those apps are great. They are not native to macOS. Electron is a software framework that gives developers the ability to convert their web apps into what look like native Mac desktop apps. But Electron is only a wrapper around a web hosted solution. You will know this if you have used Evernote 10. It's nothing short of appalling in terms of performance. You can make a cup of tea and drink half of it while Evernote 10 considers starting up. As for the Notion app, it's the lack of features there that's diabolical. You can open new windows, but there's no concept of opening additional Notion pages in tabs. How is that an acceptable user experience? Initial reports of the impending 1Password 8 on the Apple News sites failed to mention the fact that the app had switched from being a native app to being an Electron app. Nor did they mention the subscription-only nature of 1Password 8, which proves my point about so-called news sites, massive air quotes, doing nothing more than regurgitating the press releases that land on their desks. There were several reports about this on completely different sites that were almost verbatim. Now, I've only ever asked for one feature from 1Password, the ability to sort the apps first by app name and then by app version. Without that, I've got eight versions of an app displayed alphabetically by app name, but in some random version order. I got an acknowledgement of my request via Twitter years ago, but did it ever happen? No. But it appears that they do have the time to piddle around rebuilding the entire thing in Electron. Great going, guys. Insert sarcasm here. Alternatives? Well, what of Apple's Catalyst platform? Apps written for iOS can be ported to the Mac. And it seems that while the iOS development side of things is acceptable to the developers, the porting to the Mac isn't to their liking. Catalyst apps on the Mac, like Craft, have multiple issues, including, for example, missing shortcuts. Worse than that are clashes with older but ostensibly supported operating systems. So, for example, I have an issue with Craft where I use the backspace key and instead of it deleting one character, it deletes a random number of characters. <laughs> oh yeah, that one needed reining in somewhat. And that's because I'm still on Catalina. If I was on Biggles, no problem. It's purely an issue with Catalina. The only people who can fix it are Apple and they're not inclined to because they've moved on. So until I move to Biggles, I have to deal with that problem. Now, maybe the Catalyst platform will be mature enough in a few years for developers to be happy using it. But that doesn't help users who need usable versions of the apps between now and then. There is an obvious answer. Don't bin the native version. But an increasing number of devs are doing just that. Agile Bits, the developers of 1Password, refer to that as, and I quote, skating to where the puck is going to be which rang a bell for me, so I hit Google. 
Steve Jobs used exactly the same quote at the end of Macworld in 2007. The full quote is, there's an old Wayne Gretzky quote that I love. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. And we've always tried to do that at Apple since the very beginning, and we always will. This quote surfaced again in 2011 when it was included in a video that Apple produced to mark Steve's passing. If you Google the quote, the first result that's returned is titled CEOs, stop debasing Wayne Gretzky's I skate to where the puck is going quote. And the subtitle of that article? The Great One's most famous aphorism has been degraded to trite cliches through overuse. Hmm, <laughs> spot on. To say the proverbial has hit the fan over this switch to Electron is a complete understatement. Despite Agile Bit's protestations to the contrary, users have been reporting that the current beta is laggy in the extreme. Hmm, sounds just like Evernote. And those comments were among the few I could mention in polite company as the language was, well, let's say, descriptive. The worst part of any app that isn't native to me is the lack of the consideration given to accessibility. Shortcuts and other accessibility features shouldn't be sacrificed for the ease of development. Because in doing that, you're excluding users completely or at least making their use of the app much more difficult. Apple works hard on accessibility for a very good reason. And shortcuts and other accessibility features are critical to how I use my Mac. I sat down with the founder of the Hindenburg app a couple of years ago at a podcast conference. He made the fatal mistake of asking me to share my thoughts. In the words of Captain Mannering, you stupid boy. Once I'd explained how I use Keyboard Maestro and an Elgato Stream Deck to edit my audio, I went on to demonstrate how much more difficult it is to do that when Hindenburg has virtually no menu options. It turned out that that was a preference that the developer had. He was clearly a minimalist. But it should at least be an option to have menu items for virtually every feature of the application. The implications of his decision or preference was that there's a global shortcut I'd used for years in Scrivener. And this shortcut is global rather than being constrained to work within Scrivener because it was to show the Scrivener scratchpad. So I could be working in a browser or anywhere else on my Mac, have Scrivener minimised to the dock, and when I use this global shortcut, the scratchpad appears. Problem was, it clashed with a shortcut in Hindenburg. And because I'd used this shortcut for so long in Scrivener, I really wanted to retain that in Scrivener and change it in Hindenburg. But I couldn't disable it in Hindenburg. There's no option to be able to do that. So I had no option but to change the shortcut in Scrivener instead. But at least their developers had provided the opportunity for me to do that. It's looking like that's what the future is going to bring in the Mac world. The Mac being a second class platform, even for longtime Mac developers. My main concerns are performance, but also features. I've yet to experience a good encounter with Electron. Oh, and just to put the tin hat on all this, when asked directly on Twitter if the Mac app client was written in Electron, their reply was, and I quote, the back end is all in Rust. Hello? Tone deaf much? That wasn't the question. Don't do that. Just answer the questions honestly, or you'll make matters even worse. So it'll be interesting to see how this one pans out. Even though Boris has deemed it safe for us to venture out, we're not leaving the confines of MacBytes headquarters, not even to attend a football match. Which means that our season tickets at Manchester United need to be passed to someone else, rather than letting them go unused. In the last show, we talked about the introduction of digital tickets and a new online ticket forwarding system that's been introduced to Old Trafford for the forthcoming season. And we left you on a cliffhanger. With four days to go before the first home match, due to a malfunctioning ticket forwarding system, we weren't able to forward our tickets to our friends. So did we manage to get the tickets to them in time for the big kickoff? I'll reveal all later. But first, during the week leading up to the game, it felt like a barrage of emails from United were hitting our inboxes. We'd already had one email a couple of weeks ago with a digital season ticket attached. That was the one with a big red Add to Smartphone button that added your ticket to your wallet on your phone. 
it didn't strike me at the time just how many people don't actually know what a digital wallet is. Our 71-year-old friend for a start who said to me, I have no idea what a wallet is, apart from something in which you keep your money. So I didn't manage to place my digital ticket in it, though I did save it to my phone. I didn't have the heart to tell him that saving it to his phone actually placed it into his digital wallet. Kickoff minus three days. Three days before the game, we received another email which said, having reviewed the guidance from the Premier League, we've been advised that a sterile zone will need to remain in place around the players' area. At this stage, the number of games the sterile zone will be in place for is unknown, but we expect this to be in place until at least October and you'll be relocated automatically for these games. The players' area includes the seats where the management team and the substitutes sit, and our season tickets are actually right next to where the manager sits. Only a low wall separates us from them. They're so close, in fact, that Sir Alex Ferguson used to talk to us during matches. And in 1993, when we won the league, I accidentally knocked the crown off the top of the trophy. It was an accident. Really, it was. I reached out to touch it, and it came off in my hand. Who knew it actually wasn't attached to the trophy? Anyway, our seats, along with about 200 others, were being relocated to the executive area. I wasn't sure our friend would be happy with that, but as it turned out, when I spoke to him after the game, he'd had a great view and the seats were much more comfortable. Well, they would be, wouldn't they? They're padded. The only downside was the 18 flights of steps to get up to them. I believe back in the olden days of the theatre, these seats were referred to as being in the gods. Anyway, back to the emails. Kickoff minus two days. Yet another email arrived proclaiming that your digital and print at home season tickets have now been deactivated for the game listed below and will not permit entry to the stadium. That's enough to give anyone a heart attack but it was okay. It was just advising us that the season ticket was invalid and we'd have to add the digital ticket for Saturday's match to our wallets. It looks like we can expect one of these emails for each game from now until at least October. Later that day, another email arrived. We're pleased to confirm that the ticket forwarding function online is available now. Please accept our apologies for the delay with this. As I explained in last week's show, to allow someone else to use our digital tickets, we have to forward them using the official forwarding system, which is hosted on United's website. Before doing that, we have to link our membership account with their membership account. This is known as creating a relationship. There's two types of relationship, strong and standard. Strong allows them to control your account, renew season tickets, forward on your behalf, etc. I set up a strong relationship with you so that I can renew your season ticket and do the forwarding of your ticket on your behalf and so on. But we don't want to give that level of access and control to our friends. So the plan was to set them up as standard. And the mail went on. You can forward your ticket to supporters who are linked to your account and you have created a strong relationship with. Please note, supporters that you've created a strong relationship with will also be able to forward your ticket on your behalf. Therefore, if you don't want another supporter to have this access, don't create a strong relationship with them. So according to paragraph one, I need to create a strong relationship. But according to paragraph two, I shouldn't do that. What the actual? So it was back to the Man United Tickets Facebook group to see if anyone else had mentioned this contradiction. Or are people just resigned to making strong relationships with all and sundry? I found my answer in a post from a lady who'd been to the ticket office and got chatting with a lad who worked in there. Nothing like an official announcement to clarify their error. And this was nothing like an official announcement. He told her that the system had changed and you can now forward tickets to anyone you've set up a relationship with, strong or standard. Nice of United to tell us that. Although in the fourth email of the day from United, they no longer stated that you needed a strong relationship to forward tickets on. What they actually said was, if you're passing your ticket for this game to another supporter, please ensure you've forwarded this to them using the ticket forwarding function on your online account. Looks like we're supposed to infer that from their omission. It didn't mention that further to the previous email, they can be in a standard or strong relationship with you. 
Maybe they felt that would have been too tinderish. The email did, however, contain a link to an updated video. And this one has a professional voiceover, captions, no mouse wiggling, is at the speed that everyone can follow and is in its own player hosted on the club's website. Do you think they listened to last week's Map Bites? Anyway, there's a link to the video in the show notes. If you're interested, it's in the What If I Can't Attend a Match section of the page that we've linked to. According to the FAQs on the website, you can forge your tickets right up to kickoff. However, according to reality, i.e. the Facebook groups, it was taking a couple of days for the recipients to get the emails that contained the forwarded digital tickets. So on Thursday night, I decided I'd better forward our tickets rather than leave it to the last minute. Thankfully, by holding our nerve and waiting until then, it all went remarkably smoothly. Not a single 404 in sight, unlike everyone else in the days before. The user experience on the website was, however, a user interface disaster. Little things like, as you scroll down the list of matches, the column headings disappear. An absolute nightmare when there are two columns containing dates. One's the date I bought the ticket, the other's the date of the match. Without those column headings, you can't see which date is which. Sounds simple, but with all other issues, it meant triple checking everything yet again. Next step, select the email address of the recipient. You're presented with a drop-down list of those you're in a relationship with. And guess who was the first option? Yeah, me. You clearly can't send a ticket onto yourself, and yet there I was as an option. And once you've selected who you're sending the ticket to, there's a huge paragraph of text that explains that you're about to forge your ticket to somebody. The kind of text that requires you to confirm. But there was no tick box. There was, however, what looked like a radio button. Again, non-standard UI. A checkbox is used to provide a yes-no option. Yeah, I agree to the terms and conditions. We see them on virtually every web form that we have to fill in. Whereas a radio button group is used to provide multiple choices, which was a moot point since it turned out the radio button wasn't even clickable. Conclusion, it seemed to be there for decoration. But apart from that, the forwarding process actually worked. If we leave aside those folks who had to wait over 36 hours for their confirmation mail to arrive, brought a new meaning to snail mail. Social media was alive with horror stories of foul-ups of all descriptions prior to kickoff. I won't say that bad words were used, but we needed to consult the Urban Dictionary to discern the meaning of several of them. So, on to match day. And despite a queue that wrapped around the ticket office three times, by some miracle the game kicked off on time. It looked like the majority of people managed to get inside the ground too. And I guess a 5-1 win and a £40 million signing unveiled just before kickoff was enough to appease the most ardent critic. I can only imagine how bad it would have been if we'd lost 5-1. Now, as we mentioned on last week's show, we heard from long-time listener and old friend Barry. And he was looking for help with an iCloud problem. Take it away, Mike. He certainly was. He wrote, Hi, Elaine and Mike. It's a long time since we used to meet at the Mac Group in Warrington, but I still listen to every lovely podcast, although I still don't know what pivot tables are. Long may your broadcasting last. Your last podcast about Keynote and iCloud prompts me to write about my latest and as yet unresolved skirmish with Apple support. On July the 12th, I reported that files created on my MacBook Air were not being uploaded to iCloud as expected. Not a single one. Files were downloading OK from the M1 Mac Mini or iPad, but nothing going up. Bizarrely, changing a file name on my MacBook Air did show in iCloud, but not if I edited the contents. And no files were syncing at all. Everything works properly on my other devices. I tried all the usual and even created another user with iCloud, but it didn't make a difference. The last attempt involved deleting some files in the app support library and killing some processes in Activity Monitor. Now I have no document files at all that will sync with iCloud. Everything else, mail, calendar, etc. are okay. All that seems left is to completely nuke the machine and rebuild from scratch. Unfortunately, this message is too late for yesterday's after hours, but I wondered if you or any Macbiters had anything similar before. 
If so, how is it resolved, if at all? It might make a good story, even if it isn't solved. All the best, Barry. Oh, Barry, we feel your pain. Having had several run-ins with iCloud over the last couple of years, uh, you go first while I ponder some help for Barry. Yeah, last week I started writing a blog post in Ulysses on my iMac in the office. That's my new iMac, the one I got in December. I then took Lola out for a walk, and when I got back, I decided to carry on working on it. However, because you were in a webinar and I didn't want to disturb you, I went into the studio where I've got my other iMac. I opened Ulysses, ready to pick up where I'd left off, and found that the blog post wasn't there. And then it hit me. It uses iCloud for syncing. I did a few tests and found that anything created or edited in Ulysses on the Studio iMac will appear on my iPad and the Office iMac. Anything created in Ulysses on my iPad also appears on both iMacs. However, anything created or edited on the Office iMac doesn't get synced. I know that iCloud is working on the Office iMac because I added a file to a temp folder that I created on iCloud Drive and it got synced to all my devices. I also have the desktop and documents folders on both iMacs successfully syncing to iCloud. Both iMacs are up to date. OK, they're on Catalina and not Biggles, but they're as up to date as they can be. They're running the latest version of Ulysses and the iPad is up to date. So I logged out of iCloud on both iMacs and logged back in again, which resulted in two folders appearing in the Mighty User folder of, on the Office iMac called iCloud Drive Archive and iCloud Drive Archive 1, and a folder appearing in the Mighty User folder on the Studio iMac called iCloud Drive Archive, which wasn't a synced copy of the folder with the same name from the other iMac. Now, it appears I'm not alone. There are several forums and blog posts dedicated to Ulysses sync issues. So I've logged a ticket with the support in Ulysses and they've asked me to provide some log files. And in the meanwhile, I'm using Dropbox to sync my Ulysses content across devices. It's not as seamless as iCloud, but then again, it does work. <laughs> Story of my life. Well, my iCloud horror was the catalyst for your mail, Barry, so I won't go over it again. <laughs> the agony once was enough. But other issues that I've experienced include random syncs that never complete. And we're talking very, very small files, four or five K, and they just never finish. A reboot sometimes fixes that. Drafts not syncing on a particular Mac is one of my issues. But then a reboot of the drafts app often fixes that one. Files, especially screenshots, can take an age to sync. So they are automatically put on the desktop and I have them moved from there. But sometimes it takes ages for screenshots taken on other Macs to synchronise to the main Mac. And it's the main Mac that with a hazel rule is moving them somewhere else. So sometimes that can take days. So other than the keynote slides vanishing, which was my biggest issue at the time, the other biggest issue is iCloud Photos iCloud Photos, don't go there. Quite. I had trouble with iCloud Photos and I don't even use iCloud Photos. So I had one iMac that synced all the photos from my phone to itself. I couldn't use them in Photos as it claimed they weren't available on the system. But they were there as I could see gigs worth of space eaten up by them. Deleting them did no good. The iMac just downloaded them all again. I would, in the end, for, for sanity's sake, just have ignored it. But I only have a 256 gig hard drive and I needed the space. The only thing that stopped that in the end was completely logging out of iCloud on that device, which was a bag of hurt in itself. Tell me about it. That would be iCloud Drive Archive and iCloud Drive Archive 1. The other iCloud Drive issue that I have had was the Affinity Publisher folder. And I had data in that during the beta program of Affinity Publisher. The data refused point blank to appear when the final version of Affinity Publisher was actually released. Yes, my data was in that folder. You can be sure it isn't in that folder now. I moved the whole lot, Affinity Publisher files, Affinity Photo files and Affinity Designer files to Google Drive initially. 
But all three of those folders now live in Dropbox, as I've got three terabytes of storage, so I figure I might as well use it. And those were my iCloud issues until a couple of days ago. The other day, I opened GoodNotes on my iPhone and I saw a message that I've never seen before. It boldly stated, iCloud Engine is not ready yet. Please try again later. Now, I have decided lately, again, mental health issues, you know, if it's not working, before you try and fix it, leave it for a couple of days. There's a good chance it'll fix itself. However, I've just tried again and I'm still seeing the same message three days later. Way to go, iCloud. So I know it's no consolation to you, Barry, but you're most definitely not alone when it comes to iCloud issues. I do recall Alistair having a complete nightmare with a MacBook Pro and the iCloud set up on that. That sounds like the nearest to what you're experiencing that I've heard. Maybe Alistair can let us know how that ended. Although, sadly, from my recollection, I don't think it ended well. I think the best advice would be to make an image of your system as it is now with Carbon Copy Cloner or SuperDuper. Then you've got an option. If you've got an additional external drive, you could do a clean install onto that drive and see if it behaves any better in the iCloud department. That way, you don't have to do a full rebuild on the internal drive if you found yourself in the same place. Alternatively, you could rebuild the machine from scratch, having made that backup image, and that way you'd have an image of the current system to salvage anything that you later might find that you'd forgotten to back up. Either way, it's a complete pain. Not just doing it, but it's a complete pain that Apple can't deliver a stable cloud platform. Ultimately, I do fear a complete rebuild will be the only way to go. I wonder if it's ever got that bad that people have actually needed a new machine. Is it under Apple Care at all, Barry? Let us know. If it were me, I'd still be afraid of finding that it's no better after the rebuild and then I would have invested all that time doing it. But fingers crossed for you, Barry. Do keep in touch and let us know how you get on. And here's hoping we can all get back to our Apple toys just working, preferably soon. We heard from Evie with a question. She wrote, I'm following along with your Scrivener series. It's fascinating and I learnt so much in the first two weeks, I can't wait for the rest of the series. But my question is about both Scrivener and Ulysses. I've heard you say you use both and I'm wondering both why and how. Thanks for sharing all you do, especially all the MacBytes this summer. I'm really looking forward to Tuesdays right now. Well, great question, Evie. Thanks for the kind words. I'll try and clarify how I work with both apps. If you're unaware, both apps are pitched as writing apps. More accurately, apps to help writers write. I describe Scrivener as a writer's studio. And that's where the two apps are the same, or at least there's a huge crossover between them. The primary difference between them is how they go about helping writers write. So if we first of all start with costs and how we acquire the apps. Scriven is a standalone purchase for each platform and it's available on macOS, Windows, iOS and iPadOS. It's priced at £47 if you buy for the Mac directly. It's £43.99 for macOS if you buy it from the App Store. And that's because of the pricing differential we talked about last week. The prices on the App Store have dropped slightly. So it's a few pounds cheaper if you get it from the App Store. It's £47 on Windows. And it's $17.99 for a combined purchase of the iOS and the iPad versions. What you don't have to contend with with Scrivener is a subscription. Currently, there is no subscription involved in using any version of Scrivener. Now, Ulysses is a little bit more complicated. Ulysses is available on macOS, iPhone and iPad. And there are two ways to acquire it. First is the Ulysses subscription, which gives you access to Ulysses on all the supported platforms on as many devices as you like. That costs $5.99 a month or $48.99 a year. There are discounts available. If you have an older version of Ulysses that you actually purchased, so this is going back at least four years now when the subscription was first brought in. So if you've got that purchased older version, then you are a grandfathered user. And if you take a subscription, you get a 25% lifetime discount. 
Now, you have to keep subscribing. If at some point you decide, you know, you're going travelling for three months and you're not going to be using Ulysses, so you might as well save the money. If you pause or cancel your subscription, you will not be able to get back to that 25% lifetime discount. There's also a student discount, which is $10.99 for six months of use. But there's an entirely separate second option when it comes to Ulysses. And that second option is to acquire access to Ulysses via setup. That's currently $9.99 a month. But the two subscription options are not the same. A direct subscription allows you to use the app on any number of platforms and any number of devices. The setup subscription only allows you to use it on the number of devices that you pay setup for. So the $9.99 is for a single device. There is then an additional subscription of, I believe it's $4.99, for an extra device. Now, if you think about how Apple work with the App Store on Mac, there's no limit. And it's the same on iOS and iPadOS. So that is a restriction that's brought in because the subscription is via setup. Now, I did have a previous version, so I am grandfathered on a 25% lifetime discount. But I, I don't think I'd want to be limited with my devices in that way with a setup subscription. So I have on my desk lots of iPads. I also have three phones. I just want to pick up a device and it work. And that's when, to me, it's actually better for me to pay a little bit more for the subscription and have that flexibility. But those are the options you've got. Now, in terms of shared features, both apps provide a solid foundation and a feature set for you to trust them with your writing. Depending on your specific needs, it might come down to just a matter of personal preference between the two. Both have ways to organise your content into folders and subfolders. Both have keywords, word counts, saved searches. They work in a slightly different way, but in principle, they provide very, very similar options. Other features such as spell checking and grammar and progress tracking, again, they work in a similar enough way as to not be a killer feature to differentiate the apps. It's where the apps diverge that it gets interesting and calls for a nuanced selection of tool most suitable for you. Now, Scrivener has virtually every tool a writer could conceivably need and plenty that many writers will never need to use at all. But they're there if you do need them. Now, Scrivener works with the concept of the content being made up of a series of documents or to be more accurate, scrivenings. Each scrivening can have multiple elements of metadata attached to it. Keywords, synopsis, notes, bookmarks, links, status, labels and much, much more. All of those elements can be used in any way that makes sense to you, given the content that you're creating. One of its killer features is compile. Compile allows you to write in any way you choose, in terms of fonts, colours, layouts and much more. And then, only at the point that you need to share your work or create your final output, Compile will convert all your hard work into virtually any output you need. I suspect most of those using it output their content to Word, PDF, maybe HTML and call it done. But the compile feature itself can be pushed to extremes and allow you to create output that you may only have dreamt of, like perfectly formed emails in HTML, course outlines, in our case, show notes for the podcast, and so much more. Now, Ulysses is a markdown editor, something that Scrivener isn't. And while you can write in Scrivener in Markdown, it doesn't particularly do anything different with it by comparison to any other content that you enter in there. But Markdown allows you to semantically mark up your text. And what I mean by that is mark the text according to what level it is. Semantic markups are a way of writing and structuring content, so it reinforces the semantics or the meaning of the content rather than what it looks like. So think of it as the structure of your document rather than the look of it. Ulysses then uses the markup that you've applied and converts it to look a certain way when it's exported. The export being not as comprehensive as Compile in Scrivener, but the main reason I choose to use Ulysses for specific content is the fact that it publishes directly to WordPress. Scrivener has no feature 
equal to that at all. The compile feature is fantastic, but the file it produces, the output that's produced, is local. There's no way to automatically send it somewhere from the compile feature itself. Obviously, you can compile to HTML and then copy and paste it, but you don't publish it directly from Scrivener. So while there's a huge overlap between Scrivener and Ulysses, there's also several critical differences between them. I actually consider that they just complement one another, like a knife and fork, each useful on their own, but even better together. So I hope that gives you some idea, Evie. We will be touching on this later in the Scrivener series, and I'll probably give you a comparison between the two once we start looking at compile. So I hope that helps. Now, we're going live again on Friday with MacBytes After Hours. I'm starting a new and much anticipated Build With Me series, this time dedicated to Vivaldi. We're also continuing our Scrivener series. And what have you got planned? Excel, of course. It's easy for you, isn't it? Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or there is the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Just go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacBytes. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elena Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. Did you watch the Samsung event then? No, I don't like horror shows. Horror shows? Don't you remember that Samsung event where it turned into a musical? A musical? Yes, a musical. It was a cacophony only surpassed by Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia. Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia take some beating on the cacophony front. I know. Don't bother watching the on-demand version or you'll end up at the Genius Bar with microphone damage. Noted. So if you missed this event you won't know about the cool trick Samsung phones can perform that we can't then? I'm sure there's nothing a Samsung phone can do that I can't. I think you'll find there is. Go on then. Tell me what. They can fold in half. Fold in half? Yes, fold in half. Here's the diagram. Ye gods, why would I want to fold in half? To prove there's nothing Samsung Ear can do that you can't. Show me the diagram again. Be careful, your Apple Care might not cover this. This is as close as I can get. It looks like Apple are going to need to redefine what flat looks like again. I've got a great view from here. I can see my own illuminated backside. You only need to worry if a joystick comes into view.